The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Pray your Spirit would go to work today. Pray your Spirit would take your word, apply it to our hearts, and transform our life and give us great joy. Work today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. After finding out that Life Church was open to selling their North Campus, we had one of our elders, Mark Kaiser, meet with one of their advisors, we'll call his name Bob, and Mark and Bob had several conversations to see what it might take to put an offer together that would be agreeable to both parties. And so they met together and they worked out the details. $1.2 million it will include all the content except what Life Church brought in and all of these things. And we were both agreeable to it. Bob went to the leadership at Life Church. Mark came to our leadership and everybody was on the same page and it seemed so simple and easy and everything was moving forward. And so Mark comes to the session meetings, the elders, and he says, okay, we need a, someone to put together an offer. And I said, well, I have a very good friend who's a realtor. And he said, okay, great, go do this. It should be very, very simple, right? Just $1.2 million. Here's the address. Uh, the contingencies is our congregation has to approve it. And we get financing from the bank. Simple. And I'm like, great, I can do simple. And so I go to the to my friend, um, and it just so happens, I go to his office. He is on vacation, and so I work with one of the people who works at the office there. And he starts asking me all of these questions. Like, are you going to get a building inspection? Had your insurance approved you for this? Are you going to get a septic inspection, a radon inspection? I mean, there's so many inspections. I had no idea what half of these were. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm just extremely confused. And it's like, okay, can we just call up? Mark. And so we call up Mark and Mark walks us through it and we get done and, and we're done with the meeting and I'm driving away and I call Mark just to circle back. And I said, what do you think? And he said, well, do you have the offer to give to Life Church?" And I said, no, like I don't. And he says, well, why not? I'm like, I am so confused right now. I have no idea what's going on. And I thought maybe we were waiting until my friend got back. And so I'm just so confused. And so Mark, I'm sure he wasn't frustrated because he's fully sanctified. But Mark's on the other end of the phone. And we're talking about how I didn't get this deal done. And I say to Mark, Mark, what did I say to you? Mark, don't send a boy to do a man's job. That's right. I said, don't send a boy to do a man's job. You see, I hate paperwork. I hate contracts and all these negotiations. I hate those things. And so Mark was sending me to do a task that was completely out of my league, something that I am completely unequipped for. And so, Mark, I will make you a deal today. You will no longer send me to do these tricky property acquisitions and I will not make you fix things at the new building. Does that sound fair? All right, good. Mark used a screw gun for the first time like two years ago, and I was so proud of him. Jesus gives his disciples a task 
that is simply out of their league, something that they are unequipped to do. If you remember back at the beginning of Acts chapter one, two weeks ago, Jesus gives them this task. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth. Now, we may have become accustomed to this saying and so maybe lost the gravity of this command, but Jesus is entrusting the future of the church to 12 guys that just abandoned him a few months earlier in his greatest time of need. And he is saying that you will go and you will spread this new religion, the church, Christianity, throughout the entire world. Imagine if you were sitting in their place. Imagine how overwhelmed you must have felt. You would have thought to yourself, okay, we got to get this on Twitter, on Facebook, on TV. We got to spread the word, right? But of course, they had none of those things. And so you can imagine how overwhelmed and unequipped and out of their league and afraid they must have felt. You know, as we looked and saw God's mission to them is God's mission to us, I think some of us can resonate with how these disciples must have felt. This past week uh, at our community group, we decided to move forward with this four-week training on how to share your faith called The Journey. And when we split into prayer time and he gave me permission to share this, one of the men there said, please pray for me. This is something that I am so uncomfortable with. And I think his honest response is the same response of many of us here in this congregation because we think, or better yet, we know that leading someone to faith in Jesus Christ is simply something that is out of our league and something that we are unequipped for in and of ourselves. And so we see how the disciples felt. It's the same thing we feel. But then Pentecost happens. And the disciples are miraculously equipped to carry out the mission of God that the church might spread over the entire earth. If you would please open up to Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 21. Today is page 1178 in the Children's Bible and page 909 in the Red Bible. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus not only gives them this great commission, but Jesus says, hurry up and wait. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit to give them power to be witnesses throughout the whole wide world. Today at Pentecost, we will see this promise come to fruition as the Father sends forth his power for the mission that he has called them to. And so as we look at Pentecost today, there are three things I want us to see. I want us to see the wonder of Pentecost, the unity of Pentecost, and the meaning of Pentecost. The wonder of the unity, and the meaning of Pentecost. Now, this is a longer passage, and so I want us to read a bit and learn a bit, and then we'll read a bit more, and so we'll break it down as we go through the sermon. First, let's look at the wonder of Pentecost, verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Pentecost was a celebration that existed well before Acts chapter 2. Pentecost was established in the Old Testament. The word penta is five, pent, pentagon. And so it happens 50 days after Passover. It's a huge celebration in which Jews from all over the world come to Jerusalem and celebrate the provision that God has made for them in their harvest. It's similar to maybe what we would call Mardi Gras, which happens 40 days prior to Passover for us, but this happens 50 days after Passover. Now, during this Pentecost feast, 120 disciples of Jesus, including the 12 apostles, were gathered together in this room. And they were probably, as Ron mentioned, praying and reading God's word. And then something mysterious and something wonderful happened. Wind happened. Fire happened. You know, at first, this sounds like just really cool pyrotechnics. But wind and fire were of deep significance to these devout Jews. And in order for us to understand the wonder of Pentecost, we need to understand what wind and fire signified to the people whose Bible was the Old Testament. First, we look at wind, and it's amazing how the song echoed much of this here. But verse 2, we read, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, whether they felt the wind or just heard the wind, I'm not sure. But the Greek term here used for wind is the same term used to express breath or breath of life. Now, none of these Jews, again, would have missed the symbolism of the wind, at least if they reflected upon it. In Genesis 2, we read that after God created man, that God breathed life into Adam. This was the wind of God, the spirit of God, which also created the heavens and the earth. And then when we move on to the New Testament, Jesus picks up on this metaphor of wind and new life in John chapter 3. When he's speaking to Nicodemus, who is a devout Jew, a teacher of the Jews, and he says this in John 3, 4 through 8. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, which is physical birth, and of the spirit, that is Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That what is born of the spirit is spirit. And he says, do not marvel that I said that you must be born again. And then hear how Jesus makes this connection between wind and spirit and life. Verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born. There's a life born of the Spirit. You see, the wind in John 3 and in Genesis 2 and Acts 2 reminds us, shows us that the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, which is breathing spiritual life, is breathing life into the dead souls of men, giving them spiritual life. And then in verse 4, we see that just as the wind fills the room that they're in, that the Holy Spirit fills those who belong to God. Now, there wasn't only wind, but there was also fire. 
Verse 3 says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, to the devout Jews, fire had a significant and even overwhelming message. If you remember when God first appeared to Moses, how did he appear in a bush that was on fire, right? Do you remember how God led Israel out of bondage through the darkness of night by a pillar of fire? Do you remember how God appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai? It says in Exodus 24, 17, that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. Do you remember how God appeared to Abraham in a flaming torch? Do you remember how God appeared to Ezekiel in wind and in fire? And so you see at Pentecost, the devout Jews would recognize that this fire symbolized the holy and majestic presence of God. But what is more miraculous is that this fire does something that it has never done before. This fire divides and it rests upon the people. The fire shows that the presence of God has not just come down, but has come down on these people individually and personally, but also collectively. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Iron Man. Iron Man is one of my favorite superheroes as well as Batman because in and of himself, they really don't have that much power or strength. It's their bat suit and their the Iron Man suit that gives them the power. But in this movie Iron Man, there's this uh, billionaire named Tony Starks and he gets caught behind enemy lines and, uh, and he has, his chest is filled with shrapnel. And so what he does is he hooks his heart up to a battery somehow to sustain life. Well, after escaping, he comes back to his home and he creates this device called the arc reactor, which is made out of pure energy. And this arc reactor gives his heart life. It makes his heart beat. And so it makes him live. But not only that, it also empowers his suit so he can do really cool things like fly and, and shoot missiles and things like that, stuff that's very cool. And so what happens with this energy and with this suit is he actually uses it not only to sustain his life, but to defend people and to save people from their enemies. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, the wonder of Pentecost is that we have something far greater than the ark reactor. We have the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, God himself living inside of us. And amongst many other glorious things, what this Holy Spirit does is it empowers spiritual life in dead souls. And it empowers us to fulfill God's mission of proclaiming his redemption throughout the entire world. You see, the fire did not just come and appear as a column of fire or as a torch of fire, but it came appearing as tongues of fire. And the reason it comes appearing as tongues of fire is because it's showing us what we are to do with the Holy Spirit, that we are to use our tongues to proclaim the glories of Christ and his kingdom throughout the entire world. You see, the wonder of Christmas is God with us. The wonder of Good Friday is God in place of us. But the wonder of Pentecost is God within us, breathing spiritual life and empowering us to fulfill his mission of proclaiming the mighty works of Jesus, that others might be saved. And so that is the wonder of Pentecost. And then we move on to see the unity of Pentecost. 
As we dive into this and we start speaking of tongues, I know many of our ears kind of perk up and say, okay, what are we supposed to believe about speaking in tongues? But I think if our focus is on speaking in tongues, we're actually going to miss the greater point of this. And so my hope, although it is wonder and glorious, what God does here through the speaking of tongues, I want us to not let that hijack our passage, but point us to the greater reality that it leads us to. And so let's look and see verse four, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. In a minute, we will see that by every nation is talking about the known world around them, which would be the Roman Empire to the west and the Parthian Empire to the east. Verse six, it says, and at this sound, the multitude came together. So they heard the sound of the wind and they came to see what was happening. And they were bewildered because each, uh, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now here, as we move into the next passage, you'll see him list out where the people come from. There's a map that will be on the screen behind me. And so you can look at the map or read along with me, whichever you would like. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, which means uh, Gentiles, not Jews, who have become fully Jewish, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, there's a lot here, and so I just kind of want to recap, okay? So there is 120 Jews gathered together in this room, and they have devoted themselves to prayer and the reading of Scripture. Probably all or the majority of them were Galileans. The Holy Spirit comes in the form of a great and mighty wind and, and fire. The Jews at the Pentecost feast, maybe close by, hear this great sound of the wind coming, and they come to see what is happening. They show up at this room, and what they witness is that these 120 followers of Jesus are speaking in tongues, and what it means by that is that they're speaking in intelligent language, an intelligent foreign language, and so this would be like if I got up here and started speaking fluent Swahili, this is what they're doing. They're speaking for all the languages across this map, and they hear them, And it's bewildering to them. And what bewilders them even more is that these people are Galileans, which means they are probably very simple people, probably pretty uneducated people who probably barely know their own language, much more another language. And so we see this speaking in tongues, which is super cool. But its purpose was not just to impress people, but to communicate a message. And we see that message here in verse 11. God combined the language that the mighty works of God might be declared. What are the mighty works of God was? We read through the rest of this chapter, it becomes evident through Peter's sermon. Peter preaches that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the dead because death couldn't hold him, that he ascended to heaven and is ruling and reigning, and that all of these mighty and glorious works happens, that you might know that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world. 
These are the mighty works of God that they were proclaiming, that the rushing wind brought, that the tongues were spoken about. They were speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here's where the unity piece comes in. Chad alluded to this earlier in the service. But in Genesis, in, the first, in Genesis chapter 11, we are told that there was one common language amongst all the people of the earth. And the people gathered together at a city called Babel. And they decided to build this great tower in order to rival God, in order to defy God. God told them to scatter, to spread out over the earth, to exercise righteous dominion over it. But they gathered together to rival against God. And then we read in Genesis eleven nine, we read, Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so what the Lord did at Babel is the Lord confused the languages, de-unifying the people to prevent the spread and pride and arrogance and sinful rebellion of mankind. I always like to explain it this way. At least this is helpful for me. You know, if you ever go to a state forest or a national forest, you'll see they put in these fire breaks. They cut down a bunch of trees. A lot of times they put roads in there. And the reason that they do this is so that if a fire starts in one quadrant of the park, that it's not easily skipping over those roads to continue the fire in the other quadrants of the forest. In the same way, God put these breaks between humanity called language. And he did this to create the, the expansion of sin. And so you can imagine right now, ISIS is a reality. They're doing horrific things. But what they are doing is recruiting like crazy. People are, for some reason, attracted to them. Could you imagine how rapidly a movement like this would spread if we had all one common language? And so God, by his grace, de-unifies the people to prevent the spread of our sin and our greed and our arrogance. But then we get to Pentecost. In Genesis chapter 11, he divides the people to prevent the spread of sin. But in Acts 2, God unifies the people with the message of the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. You see, the people at Pentecost came from throughout all the world, and they thought they were just simply coming to celebrate the harvest. But they were coming to, is to come and hear the gospel, to repent of their sins, to trust in Christ for their salvation, to be baptized, and then to be sent out into the whole world to extend the kingdom of the redemption of Christ. I didn't tell you this earlier, but Pentecost also has other names. It's called the day of first fruits or the feast of the harvest, because that's where they were celebrating, the, the feast of the harvest of their goods. But how glorious is the plan of God to create Pentecost in the Old Testament to display the glory of Pentecost in the New Testament. You see, Pentecost would now be the first fruits of a greater harvest, the harvest of souls. On that day, 3,000 were saved, and then they were dispersed to flood the entire universe, the entire earth, to reap the harvest of souls for the kingdom of Christ. And so at the Tower of Babel, people came together to make a name for themselves. But at Pentecost, the people were unified with a message of the gospel of Christ and then sent out to declare the glory of Jesus. And so the wonder of Pentecost is God 
within us. The unity of Pentecost is God unifying communication for the proclamation of the gospel throughout the entire world. And then finally, the meaning of Pentecost. Look at verse 12 with me, if you would. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? I'm so glad they asked, because it gave me a third main point. What does this mean? But others mock, saying, They are filled with new wine. In other words, there's no meaning to this. They're just drunk. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which is about 9 a.m. And the festivities didn't start till 10 a.m. Peter continues to give us the meaning of Pentecost. And again, he points these Jews back to the scriptures, back to the Old Testament. Verse 16, he said, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, remember that term last days, we're going to come back to it. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, when we read that term last days, we may often be tempted to think of the final day or the final days. But according to Peter and Joel, the last days are not the final days. The last days simply refer to the days of the messianic reign, the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. For example, in Hebrews 1-2, it says, But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And so the former days are the days of the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. But the last days are the days that we now live in, the time in which Christ has come and he is going to come again. And so Pentecost means that we are in the last days. It's telling us that the Messianic age has begun. And the sign of it, is Pentecost, that men and women would prophesy, that they would have dreams and visions, and that the Spirit of God would be poured out on God's people. And so Pentecost means that we are currently in the last days, the Messianic age. But Pentecost also tells us that we are now closer to the final day. You see, the final day is the day which Peter and Joel refer to as the day of the Lord. And it is a day of great judgment, a day in which Christ will return and judge the living and the dead and bring the completion of his kingdom. And that's what Peter's talking about here in verses 19 through 20, quoting Joel. He says this, look at verse 19 with me. He says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. The sun should be darkened. The moon turned to blood. You know, a lot of people look at these things and they try to use them to figure out when is Jesus coming back. But Jesus said he didn't even know when he was returning. And then when it doesn't happen, they look silly and they're making excuses of I did the math wrong or whatever it might be. But the reason that these signs are given is not so that we can predict when Jesus is coming, but so that when Jesus comes back, we can identify this is what's going on. 
The same thing happens here with Pentecost. When Joel talks about the pouring out of the Spirit, Joel doesn't give it to them so that they can predict when that will happen, but so that when it does happen, they will know this means that we are in the last days. And so these signs are given to tell us that we are approaching Christ's return. Now, the reason why he tells us, the reason why Pentecost communicates that we are in the last days and that we are now closer to the final day is that we might call on the name of the Lord. Look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't like to preach this way often, but let me just point out what this verse 21 does not say. It does not say that everyone who cleans up their life will be saved. It does not say everyone who has 50 verses memorized will be saved. It does not say everyone who is a good person will be saved. Nor does it say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord might be saved. Joel and Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, makes it crystal clear that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is not contingent on our obedience, nor is it a wishy-washy promise. No, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When I was younger, I've shared this story before, but when I was younger in my front yard, kind of off to the side, the other side of the driveway, there was a sewer lid. Um, grass all around it, but there was a sewer lid. And I was bored and curious one day, and so I was wondering what was underneath there. I knew my parents won't, wouldn't want me to do it because I could probably fall in there, and then they wouldn't know where I am and things of that sort. But I, I was curious, and I was bored. And so I grabbed a stick, and I stuck uh, the stick in that little you know, circular spot to pry up the lid to the sewer. And I got it high enough where I could stick my fingers in there. And so I stepped on the stick to keep the sewer lid open. I stuck my fingers under there and then I, and then I widened my stance and started to pick it up. And, and it went up about two or three inches, but then it got too heavy for me. And so it started to sink and sink and sink. And so I rested and I tried to pick it up again and again, but to no avail. My fingers are being pinched between this lid and the, the, the frame that is around it. And so I'm sitting there and the only thing I could do is call out a name. And so I'm there and I yell out, Dad! 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 And then my father starts running out the door, which um, if you've ever my, met my father, it's so much comical to see him run. But he's running, he's running towards me. And I'm stuck there and there's nothing I can do. And finally he comes over and his big dad strength lifts the lid off of my fingers so that I can go free. You see, when we are called to call upon the name of the Lord, we are not simply calling out a name, but we are calling for a person that is behind that name. And if we cry out to the Lord to save us, if we confess our own disobedience, if we confess that we are unable to save ourselves, if we confess that in our own strength, in our own goodness, we are doomed to hell forever, if we cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, come and save me, there is this promise that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so let me ask you, have you called upon the name of the Lord? 
You know, this is both an old commandment and a new commandment. It's an old commandment in that Joel says it many years ago, 800 years, 8,000 years ago. But it's also a new commandment in that we find out who this Lord is. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, talking about Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then Romans 10 says, For the scriptures say, Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches of all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, friend, have you called on the name of the Lord? Or are you still depending on your own goodness? Are you still on a performance treadmill trying to earn the favor and the love of God. You see, the call on the name of the Lord is more than just uttering his name, but it is placing your faith in Jesus Christ, entrusting your eternity to him. And as we see with the 3,000 people that come to faith in Christ later in this chapter, to call on the name of the Lord is to repent of your sin, to place your faith in Christ, and to believe that he was delivered up as the plan of God, as a substitute for your sin. And that God raised him from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And from there, he has sent his promised Holy Spirit and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And our only hope of salvation is not found in, our, found in ourself, but is only found in the name of Jesus Christ. And so have you called on the name of the Lord? Today is a good day to do it. If you have called on the name of the Lord, Romans continues, and it says this, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of Christ. And then verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not only are we to call upon the name of the Lord, but we are to tell others this is the name that is above all other names. This is the name that you can call upon for salvation. You know, when we started this sermon, I talked about us feeling unequipped, maybe having some fear, maybe feeling out of our league or beyond our capacity to share the good news of Christ with others, to which God would say, you're right. Yes and amen. You are unequipped. It is out of your league. But the good news is that Pentecost happened. You see, after the original fiasco with the realtor, we got some things straightened out. And I was going in the next week to meet with my friend, the realtor, to, to put together the offer to give to Life Church. And Mark says, Dan, would you like me to go with you? To which I said, Yes, please. The good news of Pentecost is the mission that God has called us to. He does not call us to alone. It is not simply a mission. It is a co-mission. You all are familiar with the Great Commission, probably. Jesus says to him, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, not to you, but to me, Jesus. 
Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then here it is. Here is that glorious promise. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. How can Jesus make this promise that he is with us always if he is seated at the right hand of the Father? Well, the only way he could make this promise is through Pentecost. It's through sending his Holy Spirit. And so there is the wonder of Pentecost, God within us, the unity of Pentecost to proclaim the gospel of Christ and the meaning of Pentecost, that we are in the last days and we are headed towards the final days and we must call upon the name of the Lord. Again, friends, this is not simply a mission. This is a co-mission in which you go with one another, but you also go with the spirit of the living God, the spirit of Jesus Christ, which dwells inside of you. And so praise God for the good news of the gospel and praise God for Pentecost. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have not left us alone, that, that Jesus ascended to heaven because it was better for us, because then you could not only be amongst us, but you could be in us through your Holy Spirit. God, pray that we would let your Holy Spirit go to work in our lives and in our hearts. Help the Holy Spirit, Lord. Pray the Holy Spirit would help us overcome our fears, our hesitations. And may you be glorified as we step out in faith, trusting and depending on the Holy Spirit, both for our life with you, but also to tell others the good news that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. And we pray this in his beautiful name. Amen. In Matthew 26, as Jesus is approaching his death, in which he would pay the price for our sin, he gathers with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal, which is a reminder that God's deliverance came at a cost, a blood cost, a sacrifice. And as he breaks the bread, he blesses it, and he gives it to him, says, take, eat, this is my body. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper. He said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If you're here today and you have called upon the name of the Lord, if you have trusted him for your salvation, if the leadership of a gospel preaching church has validated that and confirmed that in your life, this is for you to nourish you as you fulfill the mission that God has called you to. If you're here today and you do not trust in Christ for your salvation, we are so glad you are here. God wants to know you, but even more than that, God wants to live inside of you. And I'd love to talk to you more about how that can happen. But we ask that you pass the elements by so that you can take it one day in integrity and with honesty saying, Lord, I trust in you for my salvation. As we distribute the elements, please take and hold. And we'll take together as one body, the body of Christ.